really glad you're here. If this is your first time uh, visiting with us, thanks for coming to, to spend the morning with us. We're really glad that you're here. What is your source of strength? In other words, when you feel weak, what is it that helps you to feel strong again? Because we're all creatures and none of us is the eternal creator, we all need sources of strength. And many such sources of strength are great gifts to us from our God. A true friend, an intimate spouse, a satisfying career, an extraordinary sermon, an uplifting song, a cherished memory. This morning's text that we're going to look at addresses one potential source of strength that is particularly devious because while it feels strengthening, it will always let us down and leave us worse off than before we were strengthened by it. Yet it does provide an immediate burst of strength in a very hard time when we're most desperate for some sort of strength or even just for relief And so this makes us forget that only Jesus Christ is Lord and that knowing him is eternal life. This false source of strength I want to talk about this morning is the enemy of my enemy. It's the title of this sermon. Now, as a source of strength, this may sound a little strange and and unusual and also strange for a sermon topic. Where on earth are you going here, Peter? I would never have thought to preach on something like this were it not for the fact that that we're committed to teaching straight through books of the Bible and we're working our way through Isaiah. And this is the topic that Isaiah happens to pick up in today's passage, chapters 19 and 20. I think that Isaiah and God's Holy Spirit, who inspired Isaiah in the writing of this book, knew something that we don't know about how fickle our hearts are. Even those of us who claim loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will quickly turn away from him when the recipe for it is just right. And those of you here today who aren't yet loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, you might just find that your strength is really not all that strong, but something better is available to you. If only you will direct your allegiance to the right place. Please uh, join me again in in praying that, that I might seek God's blessing on our time here in his word. Father in heaven, please help us to meet with you, to see Jesus in the pages of Isaiah, and help us to draw our strength from you and nowhere else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our study of Isaiah this morning, we come to chapters 19 and 20. If you have one of the church Bibles, uh, it's probably on page 336, though I also just noticed we're back to having two different kinds of Bibles, so uh, somewhere around there. We're, we're well into a long section of prophetic utterances that Isaiah spoke against many nations in his day. This is the 8th century B.C., And these oracles that Isaiah speaks, they come in three cycles of five major prophecies in each cycle. And today's prophecy against the nation of Egypt is the fifth one. It completes 
the first cycle. This is a climactic moment before Isaiah circles back to Babylon in the next prophecy, which is the same nation he began with back in chapter 13. So this is a climactic moment as he brings this cycle to an end. And what you need to know as we dive into this, what you need to know about Egypt in particular at this time in history is that it is still one of the world's superpowers. They had built the pyramids. They were known for their wisdom, their art, and their high culture. And especially, they had a military and a military technology that few could reckon with. And all of this is on top of the fact that Egypt had once had a complete and oppressive dominance over the people of Judah to whom Isaiah is writing. And it had required an act of God through many terrifying supernatural plagues for God to get his people out from their slavery and into their own land. And all of this history, all of this baggage has led the people of Judah to think of Egypt through their history as a nearly almighty superpower. So for these reasons, the leaders of Isaiah's nation, this nation of Judah, they regularly sought to make alliances with Egypt, which was to the southwest of them. And so if someone as bad as Assyria, this empire is coming at us from the east, we can find an ally in Egypt to the west, and every little thing is going to be all right. Listen just to the words of an ambassador from Assyria recorded later in Isaiah. In chapter 36, verse 6, he says to the people of Judah, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? So we haven't gotten to chapter 36 yet. That's coming. But now here in chapters 19 and 20, Isaiah speaks to this habit Judah has of relying on Egypt. And he speaks to that habit in three parts. You can see in your outline. He speaks to what Egypt will be, what Egypt could be, and why you should care about either of these things. So first, let's hit our passage. What Egypt will be. In verses 1 to 15, each section of Isaiah's prophecy against Egypt here is marked by a shift in genre. This first section, verses 1 to 15, it's a poem. He's writing a poem, just like all the other prophecies against the nations that he's been writing since chapter 13, these long poems. And so as I read, you can listen for what will happen to Egypt, what it will be like for them. I'm going to say one other quick thing, that uh, as I read the text, um, whenever we come across the word Lord in all capital letters, I prefer to read that as Yahweh because it, in the Hebrew it's God's personal name that he's revealing to us. And we see a word in all capital letters. That doesn't really mean anything to us. It makes us feel like somebody's shouting at us. That's what we do in all capital letters. And when it says uh, the Lord of hosts, sometimes we get this image, I think, of, of heavenly choirs singing. Or even if you don't have that background, you might think of um, hotels or restaurants. Lord of hosts, what does that mean? But, but, but what the Hebrew means, it's talking about the military strength of our Lord. He is 
Yahweh of armies. He's the commander of armies. So in case that feels jarring, that's a bit of why I read these things that way. Other translations will translate it that way. Let me read verses 1 to 15. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols and the sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers, and I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord Yahweh of armies. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the river will be dry and parched, and its canals will become foul, and the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up, reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile, and all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook into the Nile, and they will languish who spread nets on the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair, and the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what Yahweh of armies has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. Yahweh has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing left for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In this section, Isaiah speaks of three <clears throat> pardon me, speaks of three areas in which Egypt will face collapse. He speaks of social collapse, economic collapse, and political collapse. First, the social collapse in verses 1 through 4, about what will happen. Verse 1, Yahweh rides on a swift cloud. They think they have great chariots. Well, he has an even greater chariot. He rides in on his swift cloud, and Egypt's idols will tremble. No god can stand up to Yahweh, who's riding into battle against them. Verse 2, their own citizens turn against one another. There's civil unrest. There's civil war. In verse 3, the nation is disturbed. They need to seek supernatural help from mediums and spiritists, from from witchcraft, people who can call up spirits, but there's no help to be found there for them. And in verse 4, those who had once ruled over the Hebrews as hard masters will now have a hard master set over them. The point in these verses is that the society crumbles. All of Egypt's social structures will collapse. So there's social collapse, but second, verses 5 to 10, he moves on to talk about their economic collapse. 
The waters dry up in verses 5 and 6, especially the Nile, which you might remember from your ancient history classes. The Nile is Egypt's source of livelihood. Their whole life routine is based on the flood season of the Nile, but that will wither, will dry up. Metaphorically, he's bringing economic collapse. The agriculture, verse 7, withers and vanishes, such that even in verse 8, the fishermen will have no livelihood. Verse 9, the weavers will have no livelihood. Even you get to the end of verse 10, all of Egypt's wage earners become demoralized. The judgment coming on Egypt will produce widespread economic disaster. Add that on top of the social unrest of the first four verses, and this prevents a really scary picture of what it will be like for them. But that's not all. In verses 11 to 15, this third stanza, he talks about the political collapse. In verse 11, Pharaoh cannot rely on his advisors to have anything to say that is even worth listening to. Their counsel will be stupid counsel. Verse 12, the lack of wise men is evidence of Yahweh's devastating judgment. And in verse 15, he spreads it out. The princes of the various regions and of all the tribes are just as bad as Pharaoh's own counselors. Verse 14, he wants us to know that Yahweh did this so that Egypt would be confused, staggering like a vomiting drunkard. Verse 15, none of Egypt's leaders Head or tail, palm branch or reed, none of these leaders will be able to do anything at all to help Egypt get out of her predicament. This is what Egypt will be. It will be social unrest, economic collapse, and you might think Venezuela is struggling these days. Nothing like what Egypt had to deal with. And they will be have political impotence. No leadership will be qualified to help them. Now, as dismal as this picture is, as devastating as this judgment will be on them, Isaiah does something next that he hasn't done very often for other nations in this section of the book, where he has these articles against this judgment against the nations. He does something he hasn't done very often, which is he begins to dream about what Egypt could be. What what Egypt could be. What he describes next has yet to happen historically. Perhaps it will at some point, in a literal sense, or perhaps Isaiah is using historical Egypt as an ideal metaphor of God's passion for all nations. Whatever his exact intention is, we can dream along with Isaiah to better understand the purposes of our great God. Verses 16 to 25, he talks about what Egypt could be. This second section shifts suddenly to prose, and it's that change in genre that alerts us there's something new going on here. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that Yahweh of armies shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that Yahweh of armies has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of armies. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. 
It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of armies in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to Yahweh, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom Yahweh of armies has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. This passage is organized into five paragraphs, each beginning with the phrase, In that day. Isaiah dreams about what it might be like, and this rhythm, in that day, it hums with, Five perspectives on what Egypt could be if only it would live up to its potential. Verses 16 and 17. The first perspective is one of terror. It's one of terror. Or we could say the fear of the Lord. It doesn't sound very positive at first. It says they will be like women and tremble with fear. With fear excuse me. This is like a schoolboy's taunt against the kids and the other team in the playground. You throw like a girl. This would be rather insulting to a mighty military nation, not because there is anything wrong with being a woman. You need to understand that. It's because we don't typically use women as metaphors of brute force, might, or sheer physical power, all of the things that Egypt values the most. Now, this taunt has a noble purpose. They will be terrified of Yahweh and of Judah, his people. The nation that once oppressed the people of Judah will one day be terrified of them. Egypt will bow in subservience and respect to the people of God. And Egypt will tremble, verse 17, at what Yahweh has purposed against them. What is it that he's purposed against them? As we keep reading, we see it's the end of their self-sufficiency. The end of their trust in themselves. This is the first perspective, one of terror. Second, in verse 18, the second perspective shows Egypt's new allegiance. Her new allegiance. It assimilates itself. Egypt will assimilate itself to the backwards, backwoods culture of its neighbors in Canaan. She will speak the language of Canaan. And Egypt will recognize the supremacy of Yahweh and swear allegiance to him such that they will want to be numbered among God's people, whatever it takes. In verses 19 to 22, the third perspective is one of internal religious reform. It's one of internal religious reform. There will be an altar to Yahweh at the center of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at the border of Egypt. They will cry out to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone, and he will rescue them. They will offer to him sacrifices and offerings. They will make vows. 
when Yahweh disciplines them, he will heal them. They will turn to him and he will hear their prayers. The true religion will penetrate every square inch of this Egyptian superpower. The fourth perspective in verse 23 describes Egypt's international relations. Her international relations, in particular, Egypt will become allies with Assyria, the other superpower that they have rivaled for so long. And their alliance will not be a political alliance. It will be a religious alliance. It says that both of them will join in the worship of Yahweh, the true God, the God of Israel. And finally, the fifth perspective, verses 24 to 25, of what Egypt could be, is this concludes with Egypt's new identity. Egypt's new identity. When Egypt sees its true place in the world, not as a military superpower, but as an agent of Yahweh, joining with uh, Yahweh and with his people, and reforming its worship top to bottom, uniting in worship with other foreign powers, then Egypt is no longer known as enemy, oppressor, harsh master, or confused, Egypt's new identity, do you see it? Egypt, my people. Yahweh's people. Right along with Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This could be Egypt's new identity. Now, this glorious passage gives us a window into God's heart for the nations of the world. Though he judges, he wants to rescue even the ones who formerly oppressed and who constantly attacked his people. Isaiah wants us to know that the show is not over for Egypt, for Assyria, for any other the nations he's been talking about, Moab, Philistia, Babylon, or Syria. The door is always open. The invitation is always active that they can pledge their allegiance to the true God. They can become his people, his handiwork, his inheritance, and they can inherit the earth along with the meek, those who turn to Jesus Christ so as to be saved. And it is this theme of God's heart for the nations that the first Christians tapped into centuries later to understand how the message about Jesus' death and resurrection was for more than just the Jews. It was for everybody. God wants everybody to come in and to understand this. How does this apply? Talking about all this stuff and what this means. But, but what's the point of it? Why is this here for us today? Here's an application for you. Beware your strength. Beware your strength. If you don't yet follow Jesus, please consider where you draw your strength from. Egypt found her strength from within, deep within. My might, my power, my intellect. And you here today should know that your strength cannot be in your life stability or your natural talents or your relational capital or your education or your intelligence, or your earning potential, to just name a few possibilities. Because, friends, the king of kings delights to disrupt these very sorts of things. And it is inevitable that he will one day do just that in your life. 
but you can find a better source of strength. Worship Jesus with us, and you too will find a home among his people. It doesn't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. You will have new strength as his handiwork. You will become the inheritance he prizes. This is what Egypt of the 8th century could be. It's what any of you sitting here today, man, woman, or child, could be as well. Let me conclude. Let me end with with a crucial question for us. Why should you care about Egypt? Why should I care about Egypt, about what Isaiah says about Egypt? Why does any of this really matter? Isaiah answers that for us in chapter 20. He shifts genre one more time to signal a change in section. He's no longer speaking a prophecy in plain prose. He's actually narrating a story for us. He gives us a narrative to draw us in so we too might care about both what Egypt will be and what Egypt could be. Isaiah 20, verses 1 to the whole chapter, verses 1 to 6. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time Yahweh spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Don't worry, I'm not going to put any illustrations on the screen. Then Yahweh said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush their hope and of Egypt their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Isaiah speaks into a very specific situation in this chapter. Verse 1, King Sargon of Assyria sent his chief commander to attack Ashdod and to capture it. Now, Ashdod was a city of the Philistines right on the western border of Judah. This is pretty close to home for Isaiah's people whom he's writing to. And according to verse 5, the people of Judah have made Cush, which is another name for Ethiopia, well, today we call Ethiopia, they've made Cush their hope, and they've made Egypt their boast. With the looming threat of Assyria, they have relied on Egypt to rescue them. They have turned to the enemy of their enemy as their hope and their boast. Verse 6 says they have fled with their allegiance to Egypt for help to rescue them from the king of Assyria. This last section here in this prophecy against Egypt, it is the cornerstone that explains to us why Isaiah has said about Egypt all the things he said in chapter 19. In the face of a great threat, in the midst of terrible suffering, when everything is about to collapse for Judah, Judah has turned to Egypt for relief. 
Egypt is the answer. Egypt is their help on which they rely. And Yahweh has said through Isaiah, Dear friends, please understand what Egypt will be. A confused and bankrupt region with uncontrollable civil unrest. Dear friends, please understand what Egypt could be. A part of you, a part of my people, if they would but give themselves to worship Yahweh alone. And God is so committed to delivering this message to the people of Judah that he had asked his prophet Isaiah to walk around for three years naked and barefoot. What on earth is this guy doing? Just to make a point about the coming shame of Egypt. The nakedness of Egypt that would be exposed. Their exiles would be carried off naked and barefoot. They would walk across the land as refugees. And these are the people upon you have, you have relied. Don't do it. If they couldn't survive, how will you escape? And that's the closing question at the end of verse 6. How will we escape? Two applications for us today. First, please check your response to the news. Check your response to the news. Though we ought to work for change in society, please don't let your spirits and your emotional stability rise and fall with each new Supreme Court appointee or other political development. Because we are citizens of heaven. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we are strangers on this earth. We are citizens of heaven. That means even the United States is a foreign power to us. And we contend to see the United States as the answer to all the other evil powers in the world. The enemy of our enemy. Now, we must live as productive citizens of this land, seeking the welfare of our community and our country. There is nothing wrong with patriotism or with love for our country. But friends, please do not make this nation your boast or your hope, lest God ask me to walk around three years naked and barefoot in this church. I don't want it to happen. Don't make this nation your boast or your hope. The enemy of your enemy is not able to rescue you in the end. So please check your response to the news. Our trust is not there. Second application. Please don't value relief over worship. Please don't value relief over worship. When you are under attack, when you are suffering, like, you feel like Assyria is attacking me. They've gotten pretty close. Ashdod, that's in our border, just fell. We're in big trouble. Be aware of and resist the temptation toward valuing relief. I just want to get out of this. Where can I turn to get some relief? Maybe Egypt can help. And this, this one really resonates with me right now. I'm facing a number of really stressful situations in this season of life. And I desperately want relief. And sometimes I've been tempted to seek that at the cost of worship. 
it can be a struggle for me to maintain a vibrant closeness with the Lord Jesus when I'm under tremendous pressure. But friends, our goal is not merely to bring our pain to an end. Our goal is to see the world, both our friends and our enemies, and our frenemies, we want to see them all worshiping at the throne of Jesus. That's what Yahweh says can, can unite Egypt and Assyria is worship of him. Instead of being desperate for whatever will relieve our suffering, whether that be new legislation, a conservative Supreme Court, the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade, or a booming economy, whatever it might be, that might give us some relief, we must instead be single-minded about worshiping the one true God and asking others to join us in worshiping him. This is what it means to be his people, his handiwork, his inheritance. And let's remember how God made it possible for us to be his people, his handiwork, his inheritance. There came another man, greater than Isaiah, who also went naked and barefoot as he hung on a tree. Jesus Christ claimed to be God, but he was treated like an exile from Egypt. God the Father forsook him and punished him for the sin of the world so that we could return home and become his family. And when Jesus' early followers were suffering at the hands of the Jewish leadership in their day, they may have been tempted to trust in Rome for strength. The enemy of our enemy can come and protect us and give us relief. But instead what they did is they went out and they went forth proclaiming that Jesus was a rival king to Caesar. Caesar had claimed to be Lord, but the message went out that only Jesus is Lord. And they called on the descendants of Egypt and the descendants of Assyria and the descendants of many other nations to join them in worshiping Jesus as Lord. And so we now today trust in Jesus to be our strength. And we call all kinds of people to join us in worship, to speak with us the language of righteousness, peace, and joy in knowing God. Together we swear allegiance to this God who died and rose from the dead. We love America, but America is not our strength. Jesus is our strength. Though he strikes us, he does it also to heal us. When we turn to him, he listens to our pleas for mercy, and he heals us. He is the solid rock on which we stand. Our hope must be built on nothing less. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us a rock, one who will never let us down, who heals us, who makes us his inheritance, and who rescues and delivers us. Help us, Lord, to see day by day this week all the places where we are tempted to set our hope, to draw our strength from the enemy of our enemy, where we want to value relief over worship, where our spirits rise and fall as we see the news. Help us to trust in Jesus, where we have a secure foundation that will never let us down. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.